Welcome, everyone. My name is Manesh Patel, and we welcome you to this podcast entitled, What Does the Zoreno Study Mean for Our Patients with Atrial Fibrillation and Kidney Disease? I'm a cardiologist at Duke University and excited to do this podcast with two friends and colleagues, Reinhold Kreutz and Andrew Steele. And I'll ask them both to tell us a little bit about where they are in their um, background, and then we'll get started with some questions. Reinhold, I'll start with you. Well, thank you for having me. My name is Reinhold Kreutz. I'm a clinical pharmacologist at the Charité University of Medicine in Berlin, in Germany. Great. And Andrew? Thank you again for including me. Uh, my name is Andrew Steele. I'm a nephrologist uh, and clinical investigator uh, at Lakeridge Health, which is in the uh, greater Toronto area in Canada. Uh, and again, thank you. Great. Well, maybe we'll get started with just a little bit of background. And Reinhold, maybe I'll start with you. And can you tell us what the clinical question that Zoreno study was looking to answer? What, what was the sort of background or what was the, the hypothesis that we were trying to solve? I think first it's important to mention that, you know, all data and evidence on the use of NOACs for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation that we have that have been provided by the randomized control trials are confined to patients with a creatinine clearance above 25 to 30 milliliter per minute. And the uh, Zareno registry is, first of all, an exclusive, a study that exclusively enrolled patients with more advanced chronic kidney disease as defined by an EGFR in the range between 15 and 49 milliliter per minute. Importantly, also it's a prospective uh, registry that looked first at traditional outcomes such as stroke, other thromboembolic events, major bleeding and all cause mortality, but also analyzed kidney outcomes such as change in EGFR progression towards CKD stage five or end-stage kidney disease and the need for initiation of uh, chronic renal replacement therapy in this vulnerable uh, crew of patients with already advanced chronic kidney disease. Now, from the perspective of a nephrologist, what do you think, Andrew, are the important findings of Xarino? Well, thank you for the, for the question. This is clearly an area where there was a void in our clinical knowledge. Uh, we were generally extrapolating uh, to these more high-risk patients uh, as you know, patients with uh, CKD stage 3B and, and stage 4 uh, and beyond uh, have high risk of, of vascular events, but they also have increased risk um, of uh, progression to end-stage renal disease. So we want to use drugs that are not only uh, effective to reduce the primary outcome here, in this case, stroke prevention and, and uh, embolism, but that are safe and they're also particularly safe uh, with respect to the kidney. So renal protection, these people had uh, GFRs that were well into stage three, into the mid thirties on average. Many of them had underlying diabetes, vascular disease, hypertension. Um, and so we use agents currently in this setting, renin angiotensin system inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, SGLT2 inhibitors now have, uh, have been added to this setting. And we wanna try and protect that residual kidney function and avoid further decline. So it's very nice to see that in Zerino, uh, there was uh, renal protection here. And, and the uh, delta or the, the difference between those patients on the rivaroxaban and those patients on the alternate therapies with the vitamin K antagonists uh, was significant. And so, you know, this is a very important clinical outcome, this preservation of kidney function uh, and avoiding further decline. And we see, uh, more importantly, uh, less progression to more meaningful outcomes like end-stage renal disease or the need for renal replacement therapy, dialysis, et cetera. Uh, you know, this is all concordant with what we'd seen in earlier observational trials with the antenna program or you know, other observational assessments of randomized trials. But you know, when the GFR was preserved and we were seeing uh, small differences 
in decline over time, we didn't think it was clinically important. Here it's very clinically important because even these small changes in, in GFR over time with these more advanced patients uh, is very, very important. And we need to do everything we can to preserve the kidney function as well as to reduce their vascular outcome uh, uh, in a safe way. You know, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say that this is a powerful finding that we don't focus on a lot. You know, we we think a lot about outcomes that are, of course, things that patients complain about. But patients can't complain when their GFR is worsening. We just see that happen. And uh, I would highlight for us that it's it's an interesting finding. And now with very many observational studies, we're seeing it confirmed and that consistency is valuable. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and you know, as nephrologists, we think of it that way. And, and you know, I think uh, when I've tried to talk to my uh, cardiology colleagues about it, at first, they didn't necessarily get this. They thought, well, you know, we're used to looking at, you know, real heart outcomes like you know, mortality, et cetera. But, you know, in, in renal studies, this is something that's even by the FDA has been accepted, these delta GFRs, as an important intermediate outcome that, uh, you know, leads credence to even getting drugs, uh, uh, you know, approved. So I think it's very important for certainly for the nephrologist, for the patient, clearly uh, avoiding, you know, further decline, avoiding further time off dialysis, at the same time, providing the benefit of the, of the drugs that we know uh, work well in this population. I mean, from a cardiology point of view, um, what would a cardiologist uh, sort of think as the key takeaway uh, from the this, this renal uh, program? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. And like, like a lot of things, you know, uh, we're all on these multidisciplinary teams, but sometimes we see the world from different perspectives as often as the case with our mm. cardiologists and our nephrologists or primary care physicians. You know, the, the valuable thing that I think we've learned over the last several years is the interplay between the heart and the kidney and obviously vascular disease. And we know that our patients with atrial fibrillation frequently have a variety of risk factors. In fact, many know that I, I give a lecture in which I say, if I can measure one thing in my patients with atrial fibrillation, it's often the creatinine and the EGFR. Because you know we learn CHADS2 VASC, we learn CHADS2, but, but every one of those things we care about, age, body weight, sex, vascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, you know, the creatinine clearance seems to capture many of those things as a marker of vascular disease and burden. In fact, it's, it's if you will, uh, uh, the canary in the coal mine for a lot of our cardiovascular patients when we're wondering how they're doing. Uh, and, and it's in that regard that I know that unfortunately patients that have end-stage renal disease or worsening renal function, CKD, diabetes and atrial fibrillation have significantly poor outcomes. And so I think many of our cardiologists need to consider renal function and they think about their patients. Deteriorating renal function is also critical because we have so many therapies we treat our heart failure cardiovascular patients with. And so we're constantly trying to make sure that we balance this. We finally, I think, also need to know about this because when we're using therapies at evidence-based doses, knowing the renal function and what it does for the renal function matters because we see a lot of inappropriately low-dose patients. And so I think Zarino and other studies like that should give you confidence that using a therapy at the studied dose not only helps the patient for those events that you care about, but now it may also be really important to think about how it helps with that um, renal, renal protection, if you will. So patients receiving rivaroxaban and Zareno were at a lower risk of the composite outcome of stroke and thromboembolic events, major bleeding and all-cause mortality compared to those patients with vitamin K antagonists. And they also saw this benefit with their kidneys. So in terms of sort of the way I think about it is we've now with Zareno shown that the observation and the clinical trial has been recapitulated and other studies have done that, as you've said. And we, just like we think about the heart and the limb for vascular disease, we think about the heart and the kidney or the kidney in many beds, because those are places where we can make a difference with these therapies. 
And unfortunately, as I said, I believe it's one of the strongest risk factors. You know, this podcast has been interesting because it's always about how we all interact to help patients do better. And so I guess I'll ask you guys, what advice can we offer our listeners on how to work most effectively in multidisciplinary teams? Maybe, Reinhold, I'll start with you and sort of say, share your experience and what you think works. Well, I think uh, to think about it and to consider that uh, this in clinical practice is important and possibly may maybe the, the ABC pathway uh, for the treatment of AF gives give some good guidance because the, the C represents and highlights, I mean, the importance of uh, management of comorbidities and cardiovascular risk and highlights also the possibilities we have for interdisciplinary management. You know, I think basically it's important to individualize treatment based on the clinical situation and the needs of individual patients. For instance, there are clearly different scenarios and possibilities for teamwork in clinical practice, depending on if the patient is like we discussed more advanced, particularly below 30 milliliter per minute, uh, uh, considering also nephrologist uh, interactions, but, but also a patient with more advanced heart failure or a patient in secondary prevention after having a stroke, you know, there are different needs and it's important to consider this and to put into a, an interdisciplinary perspective and treatment approach. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, uh, Andrew, I wonder, what, what, are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and again, we used to each, you know, treat patients in our own silos and, and we had our own perspective. But, uh, you know, over the last number of years uh, in our region, uh, and elsewhere across our country, we've started to sort of work as, uh, you know, uh, as teams. Um, we've had uh, combined journal clubs with our cardiology program and our uh, uh, neurology programs and our nephrology programs. Um, we have many of our allied health uh, uh, professionals, the, the pharmacists and the other teams work together and sometimes even work in the other clinics. So they bring a different perspective from the diabetes clinic to the kidney clinic to the cardiovascular clinic. Um, and now, now on our electronic medical records, we have a much easier way to communicate with each other around these patients uh, and, and raise awareness. So I think we first started by reviewing uh, what literature there was, and now we have something important that we can add to the literature, uh, uh, tending to agree that, you know, we do need to individualize these high-risk patients, but have certain uh, common, you know, uh, uh, themes and ideas and, and ways to practice and then uh, you know, making sure that we stay in good communication. Uh, and, and this is really the, the, the most important thing is that we, we don't practice in silos. We, we practice uh, as teams with the patient and their family at the center. So Andrew, I think your description of multidisciplinary teams is really valuable. And, and partly I would say that that's one of the values that I've gotten to do working with my nephrology colleagues, my neurologists. You know, What we learn is complex diseases like atrial fibrillation, like chronic kidney disease and vascular disease, require the lens of many. Uh, you know, I'm rounding in our ICU right now and there's not a patient where we don't have a, a nephrologist or cardiologist and, a, and sometimes no, neurologist working. And if you're a patient or a family member, you want all of that expertise to lead to better outcomes. And, and you know, that's including nursing and pharmacy. So in the outpatient arena, what I would say is a call to action for our, our co colleagues, having seen what we've seen with Zoreno, is that in 2022, now going on 10 years or more from when these trials were first presented, still 50% of patients are not getting DOACs. The DOACs now compared to warfarin have reduced stroke, they've reduced systemic embolism, they have less fatal bleeding. And now we know they, at least we've seen with Zoreno, rivaroxaban may not have as much of a renal worsening hazard as vitamin K antagonists like warfarin might, where you might have actual harm to the patient's renal function. 
And so whether it's multidisciplinary teams or teams together, I think we have to get the message out to our colleagues that one of the most important issues with our patients with atrial fibrillation are their comorbidities, as Reinhold said, and these real life examples of managing those comorbidities to get the best outcome for the patients critical. Uh, it's really been fun doing the podcast with you guys. Any any final thoughts from you guys? I'll go by uh, um, Andrew. I'll start with you first. Any final thoughts on well, this? Well, excellent. I mean, in, in Canada, we've had uh, ribaroxaban with an indication to use uh, uh, in patients with an EGFR as low as 15 for a few years. Uh, and yet that was mainly due to, you know, pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic type studies. It's nice to now see real world, well done uh, 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 clinical studies in a prospective way that confirm uh, what many of us have been doing in practice with really good, uh, you know, outcomes. And so I, I really think this has been fantastic uh, add to the literature. For sure. And Reinhold, uh, thoughts from you. You're the one who helped us carry out Zareno and bring this data to us. So we do appreciate that. Well, I'm, you know, um, managed to think about where we have come a long way at the beginning, you know, when we discussed it, I remember, you know, at the very beginning, we were concerned, concerned uh, about using uh, NOAX at all in patients with more advanced kidney disease, because they are to some extent uh, renal eliminated. And, and then they have, we have approval, as Andrew mentioned, down to 50 milliliter per minute, uh, um, particularly for the 10A inhibitors based on the pharmacokinetics. But now I actually we see that it's that they are these drugs are very efficacious, also possibly preventing renal outcomes, as we have seen in Xareno. And we just turn it around basically in a kind of a proactive uh, decision treatment choice and to use them also. You know, and because if you look in, in our data in terms of inclusion of patients, we still see that in particularly in those patients with advanced kidney disease, CKD stage four. Um, uh, EGFR below 30 milliliter per minute, twice as many patients uh, were using VKA uh, as compared to rivaroxaban. So there's still a preference, old thinking kind of, uh, and uh, attending physicians to prefer VKA in this particular group rather than turn it at possibly in the future around based on the data because we may protect the kidney by using uh, rivaroxaban. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And I'll just end by saying, you know, we, we spent a lot of our careers trying to design the studies, get the evidence out. I'll call that the first mile or the second mile. But now we need everyone to get to the last mile. Can we get the therapy to the patients? Can we improve outcomes? And some of that is implementing some of the findings, hopefully feeling that you're comfortable with it. So I want to thank you both. I want to thank the listeners who've logged in and listened to this. And I want to make sure you understand that the Zareno abstract and abstracts with the guidelines and some of the other things we've referenced will be provided in the episode notes for those who want to find out more. Thank you again, and thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast is funded by Bayer AG, and the approval code is M-A-M-R-I-V-A-L-L-12051.